You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are dealing with the subject of Babylon the Great. Now, you may have heard this even just in secular TV. There's a reputation of things like Babylon the Great and Armageddon. You might have heard this phrase. The book of Revelation is what we call an apocalyptic book. So it does deal in a lot of imagery and symbolism, that, but they do teach real things, and I'll try and explain this to you this morning. But this is a big and complex topic. I can't sugarcoat it for you, and I'm not trying to. I will do my best to explain some of these principles. There are some times I'd like to just be able to give you a nice, easy application message to make you feel good, but the text is not always like that, and it, this subject does not allow it, and we are learning about some very serious things. All of us would have looked around the world and seen evil, seen injustices, seen things that we can't explain, seen things that leave us scratching our heads as to how people can do these, why these things happen. Behind the scenes in the spiritual realm, this is your answer this morning, the forces behind it. Much of Revelation has dealt with this, but today we're going to look at the chapter that actually deals with it properly and also tells us how it ends once and for all. Now, scholars have debated this subject for a millennia, really, since the foundation of the church. So what I want to do this morning, we will get into the text a bit, but we need to lay some groundwork for you. If you remember last week, we looked at the seven bowls of wrath, which is that final pouring out where God is finally dealing with those people who will not be in his kingdom because they refuse, and in fact, they actually rebel against God at this point. And at the end of that time, do you remember the Lord the Father, he said, it is done. It is done, it's finished. And I I made the point that you either accept what Christ said on the cross when he said it is finished, referring to his salvation, dying for our sins, that we may never, ever be involved in the wrath of God. But if you don't accept that, then you have to accept that it is done and the wrath of God rests upon you. They are the only two options that we have in this world at this point. But that is what we did last week. This week we are looking in two interlude chapters, chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation, and they go together and they deal with the destruction of what is called Babylon the Great, and we're going to dig into this a little bit. You remember it just in the previous chapter, we saw Revelation 16.9, it mentioned Babylon the Great. The great city was split into three parts, the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So whatever Babylon the Great is... It is not a good thing. It was mentioned in Revelation 14. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So on and on we see this theme actually being raised through the book of Revelation, and now finally we're going to see it completed. This is what the fate of Babylon is. Now ultimately the concept of Babylon is a little bit more complex, and I want to lay some groundwork for you now. We have these two whole chapters here dedicated to it in the book of Revelation, which means it's very important. Second coming of Christ only gets one chapter. Not that that's how you rate how important something is, but just by just for contrast there, this is a very important issue because it answers the question that everyone wants to answer. Why evil? Why suffering? What is the cause of all this stuff in the world? And when will it finally stop? This is going to answer those questions. There is a lot of debate amongst Christians A lot of things come into play to do with your interpretation, how you understand the book of Revelation, how you understand history and prophecy. I've been teaching this book from what we call a futurist position. Hopefully by now you've picked up on that. If you haven't, I'm not doing my job very well. But we are near the end now, so this is the period of history that is dealing with future, future things. 
Now, I want to give a brief overview of how this has historically been understood to try and give you some perspectives because if you've been in the church a long time or you've encountered people who are interested in prophecy, both the ones who are sane and the ones who give us a bad reputation, you probably would have encountered Babylon the Great at some point and they get this from Revelation chapter 17 and 18. So the first view I'll let you know about and probably the most popular view in the, in the world really is that Babylon represents Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, but also the city of Rome. Rome was historically known as the city on seven hills, which is where you have that mentioned in the text here. And in the early church and in history, they do use Rome, Babylon rather, as a euphemism for Rome. So there is some precedent for it. Another reason is basically because from Rome, the ancient Roman Empire eventually gave way. All that was left of the Roman Empire was the Roman Catholic Church. When we studied this back in the early chapters of Revelation, I went through all of that with you. The the office of the Pope is actually a Babylonian high priest that took its name from the Roman ancient empire that got its name from Babylon. All these things continue and spread throughout the earth. So this is why people jump onto that interpretation. And as you can see there, we talked about the Queen of Heaven, That is an old Babylonian goddess. For many people who think these things died out in the ancient Near East, they are alive and well in many parts of the world today. You can see the Pope there bowing down to a statue with a crown on her head. They say that's Mary. It's not Mary. It's not the Jewish lady called Miriam that we read about in the Gospels. That is the Queen of Heaven who demands worship. This is Babylonian religion. And this is why, and I don't actually disagree with that. I, I do believe it is Babylonian religion, paganism of a rank sort. But... I don't identify Babylon with the church in a singular way. This has been the dominant view in history, though, mainly because of church history. If you go back to the time when the Roman Empire ruled the world, like I said, that was destroyed eventually. The Roman Catholic Church took over, and they then ruled the world for most of the time. Up to the 15th, 16th century, we then had something called the Protestant Reformation, where people started reading the Bible for themselves and realized that most of what the Pope was telling them was not entirely accurate. I'm simplifying and summarizing this, but please allow me that privilege for, the, for time's sake. I know it's more complex than that, but that is what we have going on here. Now, this was very popular. The reformers, of course, identified the Pope with the Antichrist, and thus they identified Roman Catholicism with Babylon the Great, and you can see how they, they did that. This was popularized through, mainly through the Geneva Bible, In fact, if you know the Geneva Bible, it was one of the first English translations, really, after Tyndale and that, the 15th, 16th century, before the King James Bible, and it had notes from all the reformers in it, like a study Bible that we would have today. And, of course, they were very anti-Catholic at that time because the church was killing a lot of them at that time, and you can understand that in history. The Pope killed a lot of believers at this time. So all of these things seem to fit. Great scholars, Augustine, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin... All of these people were of this opinion. They held to this view, and that's why it was so popular in many ways, because much of us read their works and come from that tradition. I personally do not. I differ with them on these issues, but that's one and probably the most popular view. Another popular view is that Babylon here is simply meant as representing a world religious system of some undefined sort, this sort of end 
times religion. If you've seen now in the world, there's this push for everyone to come together. Peace, love, and harmony is how it's always sold. We're going to come together, and you get these religious places where everyone's welcome, differences are shunned, and all these sorts of things that we see going on. And most people assume that in the end times, that's going to be how this coming world ruler, who we call the Antichrist popularly, will unite the world. There's maybe a little bit of truth in some of that, but I wouldn't, again, say that is the whole thing. That is basically what they say there. Another view is that Babylon is Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is in a, a they reject the Messiah, it's in an apostate state. And on and on, really, these lists go. There's many more, but they are the main ones that you will encounter. Now, the difficulty in trying to decide is not that there isn't some truth in some of these. That's why there's so much difference of opinion, because people have picked up on different things, but then they've made that thing the whole. So it's not that I reject some of what, everything that they're saying, but what I'm saying is that they don't take all the text into consideration. They usually focus on a specific part of the text, whereas I believe we have to take the whole counsel of God, and that is what I'm going to try and explain to you this morning. So most significantly, as we've already seen in Revelation, the book of Revelation is basically the Old Testament written in the New with, a, with extra stuff added, but what I mean is that it quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament, and it's always referencing something from the Old Testament, and that is no different with these two chapters in Babylon. It's referencing a couple of, well, four specific chapters from the Old Testament that we will get into this morning. But before we look at what Babylon is, let's talk about some of the concepts that Babylon evokes in our minds that come from the Bible, so we understand this. It seems that Babylon really may be the location of the very first civilization. We call it the Garden of Eden in the Bible. The Euphrates River is mentioned in connection with the Garden of Eden. This is the event where evil first came into this world, where rebellion first came into this world, where sin first came into this world. We would call that ground zero, maybe, for sin. So when we hear the word Babylon, we should think Satan, sin, and rebellion. And that is exactly what we're seeing in Revelation. Secondly, we've talked about this before, Babylon was the source of idolatry on earth. Back in the early book of Genesis, we dealt with this in earlier studies, there was a man named Nimrod who built a tower called the Tower of Babel. And that was in Babylon, obviously. Babel, Babylon, that's where this comes from. And that was a religious enterprise that he was doing there. He wanted to build a tower up to God in order to give people access to God in their wisdom that they had at that time. That was their idea but it was a direct disobedience to the command of God to spread out over the earth. They said, no, we're going to gather in one place and set up our own system of worship. And if you know anything about the Babylonian religions, it was Nimrod, his wife Semarias, their son Tammuz, who was then worshipped as a god and a saviour. And that spread into Egypt. That basically, when God separated all those nations and they spread out to give us all these different cultures that we have all over the earth, you'll find that they took these religions with them and they, you find them in every form and culture in the world today. You can go to museums around the world today, particularly the British Museum is one of the best, and you can find these things depicted on all the potteries and the walls and the reliefs. Different names are given to the gods, but they all come back basically to this same concept here. It is Babylon, it is false religion. So we should also have that understanding when we think about it. Thirdly, think about it in relation to Israel. Israel is a nation that everyone knows about today because it, it's a problematic area of the world, and that is a reason for that because it is talked about a lot in the Bible. The Bible says it's going to be a problematic area of the world. Interestingly, you go back to ancient Israel, 
Babylon was the first nation that was ever allowed to take over Jerusalem in that way after the empire was set up. And just like it was then, in the end times, I also believe it will be Babylon again, modern-day Iraq, that sort of area, that will one day again, at the end of the times of the Gentiles, take over Jerusalem. That's what we've been reading about in Revelation. So that is also related to Babylon. And fourthly, this is the final one, as we're going to read, this woman called Babylon is also called the mother of harlotry. And if you know the Bible, terms to do with adultery are relating to a spiritual adultery regarded to God's people going after other gods. So you can see why that analogy is used there. Babylon stands for false religion. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, this was always what happened. Other foreign nations would lure the Israelites away from worshipping God and worshipping their idols, their statues, and being involved in all of the things that went with that. We shall talk about some of them today. Babylon is the mother. The rest of these religions are all her offspring. Now, have you ever heard the question? We get this a lot today if you're involved in apologetics, how do you know Christianity is the right religion? I mean, there are thousands of religions. How come you, you haven't investigated every single one of them, so therefore, how can you say that you know Christianity is true? You hear that a lot. Ricky Gervais has very famously made that one very popular. I mean, it's logically fallacious. It's just not true that you have to investigate everything before you can be assured that something is true. All you really need is sufficient evidence to prove that one thing is true, it's the, it's the principle of sufficient evidence, and then you are justified in believing that. And if you've been with us any amount of time, hopefully we've gone through some of that evidence for you at these times. We have much of that. However, that question is really born out of a 20th century mindset that kind of puts all these religions in front of us like a smorgasbord at a buffet, and we sort of go along and we pick what we want, we pick the one that seems best for us. That's not how they would have thought at this time. That's not really how any nations or cultures have thought except the West, the very privileged Western world in the 21st century. The Bible really presents two religious systems on this earth. Now, we know there are thousands of religions, but the Bible presents it. There are only two religious systems. One way is God's way of redemption through faith in his word, his promises found through his son. The Bible teaches this, one king, one Lord, one Saviour, one way of salvation, one spirit, one baptism, him and him alone. That's one way. They call that the way of life. Everything else is Babylon. That's how the Bible presents it. Everything else finds its origin in Babylon. Babylon is the mother. All the rest are just offsprings. Now, I don't care whether it's the idols of the ancient Near East, the Aztec temples that were used for sacrifice, the ziggurats, the papacy, the Arabian moon god, Mother Earth, Gaia, Chakras, Vishnu, all of these things are but the offspring of Babylon. Some of them are extremely wicked. Some of them present themselves as peace, love, and harmony, and positive vibes. All of these things find their origin in Babylon. Satan is a master deceiver, and he has used them to make sure that out of these two ways, you go for the wrong one. This is why in the Bible it always says, choose life instead of death because this is what we're dealing with here. It's a very serious issue. Satan uses these things to obscure the truth and lead people away from God. So when we think of Babylon, we should understand this connotation of false religion. It has always existed since the Tower of Babel. It's traveled its way around the world into every nation and culture. Everything really comes down to two things. If we could sum it up, two ways, life and death, two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. What are the two cities most mentioned in the Bible? Babylon and Jerusalem. 
That's what these two things represent. We should think about it like that. This is why I believe Revelation has these two detailed chapters about the demise of Babylon. Having said all of that, I do believe it is insufficient to understand this text merely as a symbol, merely as a religious system, or in all these things that I've talked about, whilst there is truth to that, because the text seems to speak about specific geographic locations as well. And hopefully you've picked up that my view is that Babylon simply means Babylon. It's, it's a place in the Middle East, in, in we would call it Iraq today, southern Iraq, but it was always known where Babylon was, and there are, you can still see the ruins of Babylon today in many ways, on the banks of the Euphrates River. We have the Euphrates River already mentioned twice in the book of Revelation, and I believe that is on purpose, to give us these locations. Let me give you a few more points why I believe the literal city of Babylon is meant here. Now, most people don't like this view because they assume that it appeared on the scene during the American-Iraq War, the Gulf War, because they, then they would accuse you of saying, well, you're just looking at modern events, you're trying to make that fit the Bible. And I understand that, because people do do that, and they make horrible mistakes doing that. But this view has existed long, long, long before that, hundreds of years before that, because it comes clearly from the text here. So let's get into this a little bit. If you've been with us on Wednesday night, we've been studying Isaiah chapter 13 and 14. They are two principal chapters that deal with the destruction of Babylon, this ancient empire, Babylon. And we've talked about that. Jeremiah 50 and 51 is also two chapters that deal with the destruction of Babylon. Now, what is unusual about this, we know a lot about the fall of Babylon historically. I'll share with you how that happened in a moment. But these prophecies seem to speak of things that have not yet happened. They speak of... Babylon being destroyed in a time where there are cosmic disturbances, where the world is being judged. They, they equate the destruction of Babylon with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as in two cities that were wiped off the face of the earth. They can also mention that when this happens, Israel will turn to the Lord. There will be worldwide peace and restoration after it. Now, these things haven't happened yet. That's Isaiah. Jeremiah also says that Babylon would be destroyed from an army from the north. Yet historically, the Persians came from the east. Jeremiah 51 predicts that Babylon would be destroyed suddenly, like Sodom and Gomorrah was. Yet we know historically Babylon was actually taken over very slowly. It took quite a few hundred years, actually, for it to completely disappear. Now, because of these things, people say that it doesn't fit the historical destruction of Babylon, and I would probably agree with them. Because of this, I think some of these scriptures require a future fulfillment. Now... We have to take all of these things into account when we come up with our interpretation. And that's why Jerusalem and Rome, I rule out all of those views as being the totality of this text. We do require a future city known as Babylon that will have a world ruler that will rule over the world and over Jerusalem in these final days, which is exactly what we've been reading about in Revelation. That does seem to be the picture that we have in the Bible. But let's talk about the historic Babylon a bit, and I'll show you actually what happened there. Ancient Babylon was known as one of the ancient, the greatest empires in the world. You've probably seen pictures of those famous Ishtar gates, the blue gates with the lions on them. The lions were representing the, the god Ishtar. Again, Babylonian religion that we see coming through here. And in the centre of this city, they had a wonderful temple, a temple to a god named Marduk. Ancient historians tell us that there was a massive gold statue of him weighing 52,000 pounds there. It was also one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You might have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. All of these things are historical Babylon. 
Now, we've read from the prophecies that when Babylon was destroyed, it was going to be utterly destroyed suddenly, and all these things were going to happen. Now, historically, when the Babylon Empire was taken over, that's not exactly what happened. The Persian Empire was responsible for taking over Babylon, and Babylon was a very big city. They had these massive walls that you can see there around the city. They were 85 feet thick. You could ride chariots in the middle of them. They were very confident about their security, and thus, when people tried to attack them, they didn't even really flinch. They just put everything inside the gates and they'd carry on life as usual and mostly that was okay. Until this man Cyrus, the head of the Persian Empire, came along. He was very clever and in a wonderful feat of of military strategy, he actually built somewhere out out the way where they couldn't see, he diverted the water from the river Euphrates. If you could see they they were banked on the river Euphrates there. He diverted the water away by building a channel so that one of the gates that put this water into the city so they had fresh water, lowered, and it basically dried up. And therefore, he took his entire army under the gates of the city, and they took over without even having to really fight. In fact, it was days later that people in the city even realized a change of government had happened without them knowing. And that is how Babylon was taken over. So that does not fit what we read about in the prophecies of how Babylon is going to be destroyed. So when you put all of these things together, For me, you have to have a future fulfillment. And I I say Babylon will at some point rise to prominence again in the world. It hasn't happened yet, but that will probably be the situation and these things will be fulfilled. And I thought, let's look at one more reason why, which comes from our chapter today. So if you have your Bible, Revelation 17, this is my final point and then we'll get into the text. Look at verse 18, right at the end of the chapter. It says, The woman you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So it actually specifically identifies for us that the woman that we're going to read about symbolically is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And elsewhere we're going to find out that this is Babylon. The term, the great city, comes from Nebuchadnezzar's claim, this is Babylon the great, look what I have built right before he was humbled by the Lord. That's some background to it. Now let's get into the text here. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So one of these same seven angels that John saw earlier in chapter 15, he now comes forward to show John a little bit more about what happens with the seventh bowl judgment. She is called the Great Harlot. That's quite a strong name. The title focuses obviously on what we've talked about a little bit, the way that Babylon leads people into adultery, and this is the concept that speaks of false religion. This is drawn from those chapters in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51.13 also calls Babylon the one who dwells by many waters. It says, The kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, as do the earth dwellers, those people in Revelation. This gives us a little glimpse of what religion will be like in the last days. We've talked about this as we've gone through. By this point, there is one world ruler ruling over the earth, making people bow down to his statue, making people give obedience to him. The lines in the sand have been drawn very clearly. It's either God, for God, or against God at this point. There is no mistaking. There is no middle ground. There's no, I didn't have enough evidence. There's no knowing at this point. You know what you're doing at this point. 
And historically, it says kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. This is not hard to imagine. I could take you to many world religions today and show you some of the immoralities that are permitted in those religions and that go on all around the world today over and over, over again. Historically, we've looked at some of these religions too, the Roman religions that come from Babylon. We've seen that gross sexual immorality is often a part of worship. Just as it was then, it is now, and it probably will be more so in the future. Verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. So here we see Babylon being described as the woman who sits on the beast. Now this might sound confusing and you might start thinking, what is this talking about? This is why I gave you that little caveat at the beginning. We've spent almost a whole year building up and explaining all of these things previously. But the beast was a character who was introduced to us in Revelation 13. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and his heads were blasphemous names. This, we argued, was the coming world ruler, the Antichrist. This is the beast that it's talking about. So the woman is the city, the beast is this person who's already been introduced. And it says that this woman is clothed in purple and gold and scarlet. These are items that in the ancient world indicated great wealth. So remember at this point, it's most likely that the kings of the earth, all of these nations that have given their allegiance to this coming political movement, are giving gifts giving tribute, as you would say, to this coming world ruler. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. We see this happening all over the world today. It's very common, and it has been throughout history. Often, places of worship have always been the targets of thieves, because usually that's where all the treasure is. Throughout the ancient Near East, it was like that anyway. The Vatican is the richest religious organization in the world today. Somewhere of 150 billion, and that's only the stuff they declare. They have their own bank. Actually have, they are actually their own country, the Vatican, if you knew that. They're their own state. They have 800 people, and that means the amount of money they have and the amount of people they have, they're the richest country in the world. And they have all the treasures that are actually priceless within the Vatican Museum. And most of these were given to the Pope as tribute, and the rest of them were taken by the Pope as payment, basically, whenever he wanted. That's some of the history of the Vatican. But look at this one. If you look at this, this is a Hindu temple. I'm not going to try and pronounce the world for it. If you can see, see the, uh, put the gold temple up. This is today. This is today. This was just the ask, these articles came out not too long ago. They had these secret vaults hidden in this temple. And this is a temple to the Hindu god Vishnu. And there are trillions of pounds worth of treasure in this vault. And it's said to be, when, they, when they've been into some of these vaults, there's literally like gold, just things you've never even heard of, complete statues of gold, coconuts embedded with jewel. It's just, it's insane to read what they found in here. And it's still there today. It's always armed by 500, complete, by the military basically in India today, but it is a temple to Lord Vishnu. But there is one vault that they will not open. It's called Vault B. You can see the gates if you put the, uh, those two pictures of the gates of Vault B. 
That's not a joke. That's actually what it looks like. like that is, you know, I mean, we're talking about Babylonian religion. That is the gate to vault B of which there is estimated to be, well, they can't estimate it, so much treasure in that vault. Every other vault has been full of treasure. And I was reading about this, and you know, there are people who believe there are secret tunnels to it, and this is how the Indian royal family gets much of its wealth. They just take some whenever they need it. But it's estimated that there's over a trillion pounds worth of treasure and it's not, it's not currency or objects, this is gold and silver and jewels that is hidden in this temple and is still there today. And a lot of it's been, we know this is true, because a lot of it's been actually been officially declared now by the Indian government. But this is the sort of thing we are seeing here. It's just insane, really. And one of the interesting things is when you read this article, you will see that what it says, where most of this treasure came from, is that it was given by kings and nations of the earth as tribute in honour of the god Vishnu. That's what happens. And that, I believe, is exactly what we're looking at here. Now, this was in a time when you have, you know, this is an idol, this is just a statue. We're dealing with a time when you actually have a person who is being worshipped as God again, this coming world ruler who has united religions, militaries, politics, economics, and all of these things, and all these nations are following him. Think what they are going to be giving him. And that's why we see here the clothed in scarlet, cup of gold, all these different descriptions of wealth are given to this person known as Babylon and his system. Notice again in the text, it says there is a name on her forehead. We've talked about this previously. Names on forehead is a way of identification. We understand this today. You look through many militaries today, you'll see on their caps, they always have their badge and their banner. Remember we spoke about that? In Revelation, we've already seen that the 144,000 of God's Jewish people will be sealed with his name on their forehead. We've seen that this concept called the mark of the beast was nothing, you know, many people say it's a chip or whatever, but it is simply in the text said to be an identification that you have assigned yourself to one particular political and religious party at this time in history. And as has often been done in history, you will have a badge to do that. If you've ever seen the Hezbollah or any Islamic sects today, they always have a thing on their forehead with their creed on the top of it. That's just what goes on in the world. This is the same sort of thing. It's nothing unusual here going on. And now it may be way more than that. We talked about that when we studied it. But it is on her forehead. This is to identify again who she is. And on her forehead she has this name written. Now I want to show you here something that you might be wondering if you're reading from different Bibles here. I read it to you like this. I'll read it to you again. This is verse 5. It says, And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now you'll notice part of that is capitalised, which is the title. That's from the New American Standard Bible. If you read this in an a New King James Version, it'll read like this. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots and Abominations of the Earth. And you'll see that they've highlighted and capitalised the word mystery there, making it part of the title on this woman. Now, that might sound like I'm splitting hairs there, why is this done? But this is, that does actually change what we're looking at here. Now, this cannot really be settled, but neither of these are wrong, per se. They're just translators' best interpretation of the Greek. It's actually unclear how that wants it to be. But the reason, really, I believe why you have mystery highlighted as part of the title from the King James is because, obviously, they come from the time of the Reformation, 
and having mystery Babylon speaks clearly of a religious system and they wanted to relate that to the Roman Catholic Church. So this is translator's preference, that's all it is at this point. They highlighted that and made it mystery. We actually know, and I think the text actually gives us clues, that that is not the best translation because it actually explains it for us elsewhere as we go down. So it should read, a name was written, a mystery, the name is Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. The mystery is simply describing the mystery of the relationship between the beast and the woman, which is exactly what it says in verse 7, if you look. The angel said to me, why do you wonder? I tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her. That's what we have there. Everywhere else we see the name mentioned. We never have the word mystery associated with it. It's always Babylon the Great. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. So at this point... That's what I believe should be happening here, and most of the modern translations uh, have changed that. But like I said, it's not actually a difference in the text, it's purely translator's preference there. Mother of harlots, let's talk about that phrase. It's a tough phrase, isn't it, to be called the mother of harlots. This is basically referring to the religious component, the source of all false religions. For me, this is also why it cannot be Rome. Rome is quite new on the scene, really, even by our standards. Ancient Rome was kind of new on the scene. Paganism existed long before ancient Rome, so you can't have the mother appearing long before the children are already on the earth. It just doesn't make sense. So that's really why I discount that view. It goes right back to the Tower of Babel, to Nimrod, and these things we've talked about here. Abominations of the earth is also written. The title, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. This is a biblical term that is used to refer to the worship of other gods. We find this all throughout the Bible. Let me read to you one representative text. 2 Kings 23, verse 13. The high places which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right and on the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, for Milcom, the abomination of the sons of Ammon, the king defiled. These are all gods of the ancient Near East of Israel, referred to as abominations. That's what the point is getting at here. This is the whole concept. All of these things flow from the mother one, which was Babylon. Let's look at the... We'll just do two more verses, and then we'll finish, and we'll, we've laid the groundwork then, and we'll get into this next time. Verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly... And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. Another characteristic of this city and its religious system is that she is responsible for persecuting God's people. The saints, this I believe refers to the Jewish people at that time who are believers and all of the Gentiles at this time who are following the Lord Jesus Christ. This most likely explains why the woman and the beast are so closely linked, because we know the beast was given authority over the saints. This is why throughout the book of Revelation we see these martyred saints crying out for justice on the earth, just like many people do today. Why did this happen, Lord? Bring justice. This is him doing that at this end period of history. And we can see this around the world today in microcosm. It's going to have full reign at this period in history on the earth. But you can look around the world today to many of these false religions and you'll see a specific focus of their target is against the name of Jesus Christ. You follow the news, what's happening in Nigeria today? Thousands of Christians have been killed in an attempt to Islamize the nation. Churches are attacked, pastors are kidnapped, 
Entire villages of people are kidnapped, Christian villages, if you look closely at the details. You go to Pakistan today, places like that, that have many of these other religions. Christians are routinely and brutalized, go missing. All these sorts of things happen. Go to India. The radical Hindus focus much of their attack on the small minority of Christian communities. This is what happens. Go back into history, the Roman Catholic Church is responsible for some of the worst violence against people who name the name of Christ. On and on it goes. Why does all this happen? This is why it happens. Because behind it is the same spirit of what we're going to read come to the earth in the last days. And most of those things are happening increasingly around the world today. Most of those examples I've given are, are very fresh. I could give you many examples almost on a weekly, daily basis of those things happening. This is the spirit of Babylon rising in this world, pointing us towards what will happen one day. This is why so many times in Revelation we've seen the Lord say, he uses that word, behold, which we argued means pay attention, look at what is happening, understand what is going on in the world today. The world likes to keep us very busy, to keep us distracted, to keep us looking at anything and everything except the things that matter. And the Bible is the thing that will show us the truth. Jesus Christ is the one who will ultimately save us from that. This is what we have going on today. That is why I believe we have these whole two chapters here that detail the demise of Babylon. And we shall see soon that all this stuff will one day be removed from the earth. When the Lord Jesus sets up his kingdom, none of this stuff will be happening. Babylon will be destroyed. That is what we are reading about, which is why when you read that Babylon is destroyed in the next chapter we're going to look at, you see that the earth weeps, the earth mourns. Those who are aligned and part of this system, the ones who are doing the killing and all these sorts of things, they weep. But it also shows us a scene in heaven. Heaven rejoices when Babylon is destroyed because then and only then are we going to see this purge removed from the earth and we'll have that time of the kingdom where righteousness, truth, justice truly prevail on this earth under a ruler who can actually sustain it because those qualities come from him and himself. That is where we're heading. And it says just finally there, John was left in great amazement, wondering at the things he had seen, much like Daniel when he had his vision back all those back in the Babylonian days. Now, what is our reaction when we read something like this? Now, of course, I, I understand. Wow, that's the first time I've heard it. I need to read that or listen to that again. I understand that, and hopefully you will do that again. There's much more here that I would like to study and go over again and again. But at the very least, it should affect us. This is the thing. If you're able to walk away like nothing's happened and then go back out, and when you turn on the news and you see these things happening, to dismiss them then you'll probably end up under the wrath of God by your own choice at some point. Because you are here because the Lord has brought you here. There are certain things that he wants us to know. And this is what happens. This is how the Lord works. Often I get people come up to me after the sermon and say, how did you know that? Like, how did you know? I never told you what was going on in my life. And I say, I don't have a clue. You just preach the Bible and the Lord does that to people. When you feel that conviction of the Spirit, it's because he is calling you. He is drawing you to himself for salvation. All of these things that we're reading about in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is the way that they have, they really, they have nothing to do with us. There is no judgment. All of the judgment of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross, that by believing in him, we may be saved and we never have to suffer the wrath of God. That's the whole point. He doesn't want people to suffer the wrath of God. What he's dealing with here 
is the enemy of old who puts all this stuff on the earth. But unfortunately, as we've seen, many people choose to follow with him and they will come under the same judgment at this time. But what are we to do here as believers until this time? We are waiting for the Lord to come, but we live here now as strangers and pilgrims. Once you see this stuff, you can never quite be comfortable in the world again. Because you know, and you have to close your eyes to it if you are going to try and be comfortable. And usually what I've seen is when people do that, they end up going so far into the deep end that they end up ruining their lives because they're trying to harden their hearts from what is so patently obvious. We are here now as strangers and pilgrims. The Lord has given us citizenship of another kingdom, it says, another country. We are waiting for that country to be established, for that government to be established. One day it will but right now we are in foreign territory in many ways. The day will come, the king will come to his throne in Jerusalem, and Babylon will be but a distant memory. But until that day, he tells us to serve him, to be ambassadors for that kingdom, to speak about him to everyone that we can, and bring as many as we can into the kingdom with us. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.